This is WMPG 90.9 Southern Maine Community Radio from USM. In the Pocket, a talk show that showcases Mainers who are people of color. Each episode represents a member of the Maine community from art, culture, and business, the earth, wind, and fire of life. Embracing and exploring the Black diaspora and descendants of American slavery through conversation is the foundational concept of In the Pocket. The overall mission of In the Pocket is to create conversational space for all people of color that is documented and celebrated through sharing of life experiences. You are listening to In the Pocket with your host, Flo Edwards, and our guest today is Stacy. She is from Portland, Oregon, uh, the other Portland, but now lives in the right Portland. And her um, activity, her initiative is called Tender Table. She is the founder of an organization that brings women of color together in a way that they can socialize and build community. We did record outside, uh, but I think it gives a lot of character to these pandemic times that we are living in. So, uh, to much ado, please, Stacy, introduce yourself. Hi everyone, I'm Stacy Tran, she, her. I'm from Portland, Oregon, and now I'm in Portland, Maine. I lived in Oregon for 27 years of my life, and then moved to Rhode Island in 2018 to pursue a time of poetry. And then my husband and I moved to Portland, Maine, where he's from. He's from South Portland, and his mom lives here. It's been really nice to um, be able to spend more time with her and her partner, and you know, in all the years that uh, we had been making trips to Maine. I'd never thought of myself as one day living here, but now that I'm here, I, I feel like this is where I'm supposed to be right now. It feels really good. And um, one of the reasons, another reason why we moved here is that I accepted a position as a community organizer for a nonprofit here in Maine. And um, I've been really excited to meet and connect with women, femmes, trans and non-binary folks who are in the BIPOC community through a food and storytelling platform I started in 2017 called Tender Table. And over the years, it's evolved from on-stage storytelling, like moth-style storytelling, to um, digital experiences. Of course, now that we're in a pandemic, uh, it's been really fun to experiment with how we can play with um, the virtual space and how the limitations of digital actually enable um, creativity and exploration of how we can do digital events and how we can use the mail as a way to connect with people in terms of like sending tangibles through the mail, supporting the postal service, and also, you know, who doesn't like getting something nice in the mail these days when everything is so digital and in the cloud and um, I just thought it'd be nice to like connect with folks um, through more tangible objects. So in uh, 2017, I didn't realize it had been around for four years. I just kind of stumbled upon it very recently. So that's awesome. Like it's been around for a while. Um, were you still sending things back in 2017 or that is really just a, a COVID development? 
the mail is definitely a COVID development. Uh, sending care packages and kits in the mail has um, been a new thing that I've explored this year. Um, in 2017 through early 2019, the events were mostly, uh, they were all in person. So each event featured two or three storytellers who would share a story connecting to food, um, identity, family, community, whatever connections they had with food. Not always positive, but I thought that there were a lot of really important conversations that happened from that space. Um, and I wish that I had recorded them because I wish I could go back and like listen to the archives. And so in 2017, it felt really important to bring people together after the election and have a nourishing space that was for us and by us um, as people of color living in a white city. And also the food scene in Portland, Oregon is very much like white chefs who make food from countries that they've traveled to, that they don't really have a deep relationship to that culture, where they're not from those cultures. And I often felt like there was a level of appropriation that happened with those restaurants and businesses who are profiting off of cuisines from other countries. Shortly after that, I got a job as a community organizer at a nonprofit here in Maine, and my husband and I moved here from Rhode Island. Um, he's actually from Maine, so that's one of my connections to Maine, and I'm really excited to be here. Well, thank you. Thank you for going across the country and then some. <laughs> it's really appreciated. So I'm actually a little interested to why were you interested in uh, arts? How did you get interested in that? I remember being like a 10 or 11 year old sitting at a computer and just typing stories away and sending them to friends in the mail. And I'm an only child, so I think part of it was that I didn't have peers in my age in the household to like express myself with. So I really love correspondence, still do. That's one of the most intimate ways to connect with people, in my opinion. And in high school, I started writing poetry Actually, I think it was actually eighth grade. I remember my eighth grade teacher, Carolyn, who I'm still friends with, actually, she and her husband, Larry, live in Oregon. Um, she, I wrote this hilarious story based off of like, I don't know, just, I don't remember anything about it, but I just remember her asking me if she could read it to the class and I was so embarrassed, but I said yes. And she read it out loud to the class and she was cracking up the whole time. And it was like, I didn't know that I could be a writer, or a funny writer for that matter, but that was one of the first moments where I felt like, okay, maybe, maybe I could be a writer. And in high school I continued writing, not, not very seriously, you know, I would journal and I would write stuff in class and I would get like positive feedback when I shared things in my like English writing class, but I didn't really like think about it as a, an avenue for me to like continue pursuing. And I went to college thinking I would study journalism. And when I got to University of Oregon, I started taking classes in the journalism department and quickly found out that that was not for me. 
Um, I did not like being told how to frame my stories. I did not like being told like what I was being told in those classes. And as a 17 year old, uh, first time living away from home, really wanting to like explore my voice. And so I don't know who it was or what it was who, who influenced this decision, but I remember switching out of my classes for English Lit and my first creative writing workshop. Um, where I met Michelle Peñalosa, who's my first poetry instructor who I'll never forget. She had like the coolest glasses, like she'd come in every day and they'd be like different colors. Who's a poet and um, she's also an Asian woman. And before that, I had never seen an Asian woman in front of the classroom before. So seeing her lead the workshop definitely resonated with me in ways that maybe I didn't realize in that moment, but I definitely appreciate now looking back, like in, in those formative years of myself as a poet. Um, and I met my people in that class. Like for the first time as a kid who grew up in the suburbs, who felt trapped, um, who didn't have the abundance of opportunities to express myself, like I was able to finally explore that. It was the first year of college that I saw myself as a poet for the first time and met a poet from Portland, Oregon who came to the university to give a reading and he told me all about what's happening in Portland, Oregon with all the poets and the DIY spaces and the small press publishers and people making things out of their garages. And I was like, I should go back home. I should go back home and like be a part of that. So I transferred from University of Oregon to Portland State. And my second year of college, I moved back home and living at home was really hard because I had just left and experienced a sense of freedom that I had been longing for my whole life. And now I was back living with my parents and it was a struggle. And I found an outlet in poetry. I found community in poetry. I was going out whenever there was a poetry reading happening at a coffee shop or um, an event space or an art gallery. And I met, I met more people there who reminded me a lot of the people I met in my first workshop. And there was just like a collective sense of curiosity and joy. And I found myself there. And, I mean, I, I've met my best friends there, I met my husband there in that, in that community, so um, poetry is definitely a big part of my life, and I think that's where I kind of cut my teeth on community organizing, is through event organizing and connecting with people and um, lifting people up, um, and after a few years of doing that, I kind of felt like, well, this is a really right space. <laughs> Like, as an Asian person living in the suburbs all my life, um, honestly didn't really have, like, a sense of, like, as an Asian person living in the suburbs for most of my life, I wasn't, I honestly wasn't really aware of, like, my race and, like, the bubble I lived in was, like, pretty progressive and I would say, like, I felt pretty accepted and, like, not very othered, which is a privilege of being Asian and, like, my proximity to whiteness is real. And I didn't really think about that 
I didn't really think about that until later in my life, my late teens, early 20s. And that kind of led me to thinking about how important it is for us to have a space that's like made for us and by us as people of color, as women, as queer folks. And after the election of 2017, it just... Thinking about how you were talking about that you didn't feel othered and I was like, that's a really good thing to not have to feel, to not feel othered. And at the same time, I've always been irritated when people say that they don't see color. All right, why don't you go with talking about you're creating this space. So I started Tender Table in 2017, coming off the heels of the election and feeling really terrible about the white supremacist rhetoric that was getting amplified at that time to me in my life for me and found it really important to be in community with other people of color especially women femmes trans and non-binary folks who were often marginalized or not seen or the only one right and being from a, a very white city a very white state and seeing my friends who are of color who are going through similar things, it was like, let's just get together and eat and talk. And so it started around the kitchen table and it was amazing. It felt like you know, family, felt intimate, felt joyful. Like we were together and we were safe. And so I was thinking, you know, it'd be a great thing to share with, with the community and like, give people a stage to share their stories more widely and the format for Tender Table in its first couple years was inviting two or three storytellers who are women, femmes, trans or non-binary people of color and sharing their stories about how they relate to food, how food is a vehicle for getting to know and reclaim our cultures and our identities and feeling close to our ancestors. And that was really powerful to feel belonging and to see that there are a lot of us here actually. Like we are here and we hold this space for each other. Not for some white gaze, not for some legibility, but for us to be together. You were breaking bread. Yes. Yeah. Um, how powerful that must have been. Um, and you started that in Seattle? In Portland. In Portland, excuse me. Um, you started that in Portland. I, it's kind of like my own like personal bias. It's like, <laughs> oh, there's another Portland? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so you started that in Portland, and that was in 2017? Yes. Okay. And so when did you start it in Maine? So when I moved to Rhode Island 2018, I was still hosting events in Rhode Island. It's a really great way to make friends. Be like, hey, like, you want to talk about food? Like, who doesn't love food, right? And like, we have complicated relationships to food, but if there's food there, people will show up. <laughs> so true. Yeah, and so when I moved to Rhode Island, um, there was a team in Oregon that was um, developing and, and they continued the series in, in Oregon. And I, like in tandem, I was doing my thing in, in Rhode Island. And now that I'm here in Maine, 
really excited to be trying things out in like a virtual platform and finding that the limitations of the digital realm actually encourage create creative ways of putting events together that I wouldn't have thought of without you know being in this position and um, yeah it's been a really great way to meet people in a new place yeah what are some of those creative ways like I know you have care packages and then you also have events can you describe that a little bit more yeah so last weekend we had a ramen party and you know I just miss eating with other people and seeing what people like to do with their food and so I sent folks little care packages through the mail or delivered them at their local with um, a packet of instant ramen which has a very special place in my heart thanks to my dad and you know we can put whatever we want in that ramen and also lychee and mango jelly cups because that's something from my childhood that feels very nostalgic to me and it was fun I really loved seeing what people put in their ramen like different veggies different hot sauces it was cool to have like a base layer that we were all playing with and like putting our spin on it and also sitting together over a Zoom call. I mean, as unfortunate as that sounds, it was actually pretty nice to like just be munching on something together and like chatting and you know being together and not having an agenda. I mean, I associate Zoom calls with agendas because of work and you know, the way that time is compartmentalized and how socializing is so exhausting now when, when all we do is sit on a Zoom call together. But if you're sharing some food and then having stories about either the food you've just prepared and everybody made something similar, um, then it's not exhausting. Yeah, it was, it was really refreshing. And um, we had like a, a common point of connection through that ramen. And I'd love to do the same thing to like rice because like rice is such a great base in so many different cuisines across the world and I love rice like rice is a staple in my household growing up. Um, I really value the family dinners that I had with my parents like it was really important. Yeah every night at my parents' house when I was growing up, we would sit together, the three of us, and have dinner every night, always at the same time. It's nice to yeah. have good boundaries and knowing that you have an opportunity to talk about your day and to learn about everybody else's day. Yeah. And so rice kind of was a part of that, it sounds like. Yeah, so in Vietnamese, the phrase to eat is sometimes the same as like to eat rice. So um, like to eat a meal, uh, sometimes it's referred to like, let's eat rice. And so I think of rice as being part of a complete meal in a lot of ways. I mean, I definitely don't eat rice every day, but um, I just remember, I think it was maybe my dad or someone who said, like, if I don't eat rice, I don't feel like I've had a meal. Like, I don't feel full, like my dinner's not complete. So rice is really special to me and I would love to share that with the community. Um, earlier you had mentioned that one thing that you really enjoyed about Tender Table was that it was people of color, women of color, um, getting together in a, an arena that has kind of been taken over by white males. Can you elaborate more on that? Yeah, so there are a lot of white-owned restaurants who make 
food from other cultures. A lot, a lot of the ones that I know of are oftentimes Asian cultures, Asian cuisine. And in, when I was living in Oregon, one of the big ones that pissed us off was uh, one that shall not be named because I don't want to market that for them. But the white man who toured um, the Asian country and was like, this is great, I'm gonna bring this back and like make a lot of money off of it. Meanwhile, restaurants across the street from that restaurant were actually owned by people from that country who were not nearly getting as much foot traffic. And that made a lot of us mad. And that, was, that definitely was a trend um, in the food culture. And I know that that's true here too. And I know it's true in a lot of places. And you know, that just prompted a necessity for us to reclaim those foods and those cultures and those histories and make them for each other, make them for ourselves and put emphasis on why it's important to support businesses owned by people of color. For sure. And you know, what always cracks me up about it too is that when I think about antebellum times or slavery times and white people just didn't seem to know how to cook them <laughs> but now they're cooking all the time like ah. Oh. yeah right and like they even like you know thanksgiving yeah thanksgiving is a big one go on about that oh i'm just thinking about like the appropriation of indigenous ingredients or like foods that indigenous people made. I hear you. I'm kind of a person who enjoys a day off of work. And I think that's how it sits with me. I'm like, well, this is a day off of work. And you can celebrate it any way you want to. If that's not celebrating, um, then so be it. But I often make things that are actually very rooted in black culture. Um, and I assume that other people who are not straight up Caucasian make things that are from their own culture because turkey can be a little dry. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's what my parents always said. Like, I didn't realize how subversive my parents were and my family is until um, I, had a, I had my first like turkey Thanksgiving. I was like, I can't eat that. <laughs> but what we would do when I was growing up in my with my parents or my extended family, we would do Chinese roasted duck, and it's like this crispy pork that's like cut up into chunks. So good. Sounds delicious. So good. And like Vietnamese people basically eat like Chinese food when it's a big celebration. And so that's why we like go to the Chinese butcher and like get duck and pork and there are noodles and sticky rice of all different colors and like a really funny looking salad because people are like, we need to have vegetables, but like here's some cut up romaine with like cilantro in it. It's like kind of Asian fusion iceberg lettuce salad. You need some greens. And of course. Yeah, you know, that sounds delicious to me. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you know, I think Sometimes you don't realize your parents are giving you like scoping skills um, in this world that doesn't really care about you. Mm -hmm. And being subversive is a great way to label that. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're too busy living through it and then making sure that you're okay, that it's not necessarily a conversation. Like my parents would always say, oh, if I talked about a teacher or something, 
and how they did something that I thought was nice. They're like, oh, how white of her. And <laughs> they never explained it. Like, I, I didn't learn what that actually meant. And I felt like, what do they mean? Like, yeah. and when I would ask, they're just like, you'll get it. You'll, you'll get it. <laughs> that's so, that resonates with me because my parents would say things like, no, that's what white people do. We don't do that. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember getting picked up early from a slumber party for a classmate's birthday. I was so embarrassed because I was the only one getting picked up. And of course, everyone else was white. And my parents just didn't trust them, like didn't want me to be sleeping over at some white family's house. And I was so sad. I was like so messed up from that experience. And I now understand like they were protecting me. And in all the ways that I think my parents have decided to keep their head down, do their work, take care of their family, keep, you know, keep the calm, not shake the boat, you know, like some of that irates me and some of that I think is just protection from, as a result of the trauma that they lived through. And there's some assimilation that happens and then also some resistance in all of that. And there was never really like a distinct boundary about like and this is how we're gonna fit in and this is how we're gonna like maintain our heritage you know like it was always kind of I don't know I guess that kind of confused me sometimes because I was like are we Asian or are we Vietnamese or are we American what does that mean and I think like I struggle with that. I still do. And because I'm never Vietnamese enough when I'm with my family, but I'm never white enough when I'm with the rest of the world, you know? And I explore that in my first book of poems, which is called Soap for the Dogs. And in that book, I explore that stepping in between back and forth, that the slipperiness of language and being bilingual kind of switching from one to the other in my thinking and in my associations and and how I relate to the world like I'm really grateful to have more than one language to you know have as a palette I always wish I had another language to speak like I think it's such a valuable skill like um culturally and just um you could use it economically. You're like, oh, you could always just be a translator for something. Like, you just have a job right in your pocket. I didn't know that you were an author and were actually published. So can you say the name of that book again for me? Yeah, the book is called Soap for the Dogs. It's a phrase that my dad would say about hotel soap. Like, he would love to just take hotel soap home, make fun of himself for using it, and he would, like, lovingly call them like soap that you would use on dogs (laughs) i love that um my mother uh is a big fan of hotel soap and i'm like you're black it really doesn't work (laughs) on you (laughs) it doesn't work on me so but anyways yes she loved it um so yes we you have a book out uh soap for the dogs um and tender table um, there are actually a few videos on the website if people are interested in checking out like past storytellers. Mm-hmm. I lucked out and hosted an event somewhere where they had a budget and staff for people to do that. So yeah, check that out. Yeah. And speaking of checking out, thank you so much, Stacey. I appreciate your time. How can people reach you? What's the plug? 
Yeah, so you can learn more about Tender Table at tendertable.com. There's a link to make a donation to keep our lights on. I mean, right now, our expenses include running the website, graphic design, and it's really important that people of color who are contributors to the events are paid a stipend. So we're working on getting fundraising and grants in place to compensate for our labor and would appreciate any donations that you can throw our way. Any little bit counts. And you can view our events and ways to volunteer. If you have some extra time on your hands, we'd really love for your support and your time. Awesome. And I, what is your next event? Is The next event is Sunday, April 25th online. We're gonna do a recipe swap. So I'm gonna be sending people recipe cards in the mail. We're gonna send them to each other in the mail. Again, like keeping the post office working and supporting them and you know who doesn't love to get a little special mail every once in a while yeah and part of your like passion for art developed because you liked communicating through mail right so that's a nice nice way to circle back thank you for listening to in the pocket with your host flo edwards and our guest today stacy founder of tender table you are listening to wmpg 90.9 southern maine community radio